You are listening to Future Net Zero, a platform to help businesses and the wider community improve our lives and our planet by achieving net zero. Welcome to our new podcast series, Gaia Says No, Africa, in which we will explore the nature and impact of human behaviours on the continent. Join Future Net Zero founder Summit Bowes and William Pollan, director of Invest in Africa, as they are joined by Rosalind Kenya, managing director of Kina Advisory, and Reshma Shah, CEO of Interstrat Services Limited and partner at Kina Advisory. Welcome to our second series of Gaia Says No. I can't believe it. Uh, almost a year has passed, but yes, we're back. Uh, back with a, a new short run for the first part of this year. And I'll be looking at the issues around Africa, the continent of Africa. It's one of those places that I've only been to North Africa myself. I've been to places like sort of, you know, Egypt and Morocco and all those sort of places. But I've never really been to sort of proper Africa. I've always been fascinated. And I've also been fascinated about what stories come out of that continent. And in particular with Future Net Zero, we've been looking at news uh, initially the first year uh, has been pretty much dominated by kind of, I suppose, UK news. But we've had really good audiences. And uh, thank you for people listening in from India and from Iran and China and Australia. So welcome, welcome. Um, and I think to find out what's happening in Africa really is something I've been very interested in because it's the continent with so much natural resources, the continent with so much history. It's a continent with so many people, with a massive workforce. It's also a continent that I've seen, you know, and reported on where they do technology jumps. You know, people are in, installing wireless networks rather than having phone uh, connections. They're putting in uh, village solar networks. It's it's kind of a hotbed of both kind of, you know, the ability to develop, but also the ability to ascend and move technology forward. So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at the first episode. We're going to look at sustainability in Africa. What does it mean? What do people want from uh, the different nations? And then there are so many Africans, as we'll explore. And we've got three uh, excellent guests who are going to get to introduce themselves to your audience and tell you a little bit about themselves. We have William Pollan. We've got Rosalind Kenya and Reshma Shah. Uh, ladies and gents, hello. How are you all? Very well, thank you. Hello. Hi, Summit. Very well, thank you. Good to hear you. I'm all good, Summit. Yeah, good to go. So um, uh, why don't we start with you, Rosalind? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and why you're interested in Africa? Starting from why I'm interested in Africa, it's because I am African. I'm from Ghana, <laughs> bred in Ghana. Well, I was born in the UK, but bred thoroughly in Ghana. Um, spent um, my life between the continent, that continent and, and the UK. My professionally, I'm, you describe me as a lawyer, but I've been involved in this field of sustainability, as I was sharing with you earlier, since the very early 90s. So I have that um, cross of legal government relations and very interested in sustainability um, from the point of view of the environment too, but I think more about the impact it has on people Right. And I think um, the known definition of sustainability about meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs is one that is very much dear to my heart. And so that is why I've taken an interest in this area for so long. Excellent. 
And you advise people who are looking at Africa? Do you advise African companies as well? What, what yeah. Well, I'm what I am now is I'm the managing director of a, what we describe as a socioeconomic advisory company, but it very much advises um, companies that are either interested in investing in Africa or companies that are operating in Africa, that they could be international or African companies on sustainability, on responsible uh, business investment and, uh, and operations. So that's what I've been doing now for the last seven and almost a half years. Excellent, excellent. Reshma, a little bit about yourself for the audience as well. Africa is where I live. It's home. I'm actually calling in from Nairobi. So, uh, ah, well, that's what the weather is because it's freezing in London right now. <laughs> it's really um, unfortunate. I should say, fortunate for you guys. It's actually grey and oh. raining today. It's usually beautiful and sunny. So I feel like I'm with you guys because it's <laughs> grey and rainy today. Um, so. Yeah, I was born and brought up in Mombasa in Kenya. Um, I left when I was 18 uh, to go and study in the UK, but I, my family was still here. So I would come back regularly and Kenya was always home. I uh, started my career in accounting and tax advisory uh, from the UK and then moved back to Kenya uh, in 2013 to primarily take on a role around strategy and uh, risk and how to actually get our operations. I was working for an oil and gas company at the time, but quite a unique company in the sense of my remit was all around leave behind something better than what you found. So it was a lot around shared prosperity and it was around how we ran the business. And that's how I came on to sustainability, looking at it from a strategy and a risk perspective. And towards the tail end, when I was working for that company, I actually led the whole business services and external affairs side how to get land, how to get water, but not to do it just from a technical perspective, but do it from a technical commercial and as well as from a sustainability perspective. I now uh, basically advise companies on integrated strategies and risk management, working very closely with Rosalind as well on the sustainability side. And you, you talk to companies in Africa as well, yeah, I assume? A big part of my career has always been African Middle East. Um, and so the focus still remains African Middle East, uh, Africa more so. But what we do can transpose across the globe. Yeah. Um, but our focus is very much Africa. Okay, I'd, I'd like to explore that in a bit. And then last but not least, William, tell us. You're not African, William. What are you doing on this call? Pseudo-African. <laughs> <laughs> Pseudo-African. <laughs> My license to get a few things wrong going Go forward. Go I'm the outsider. Um, so I run a business called Invest in Africa. There's a few others out there with similar names, but we are the original, I like to think, Invest in Africa. Um, it's a UK headquartered, but with uh, presence across various markets in Africa. And we are a not-for-profit organization that focuses on building capacity and capabilities of typically uh, small local businesses across the markets where we work. So that's Kenya, Senegal, Ghana, Mauritania, and then we do bits in Zambia and um, potentially Uganda as well. But all of what we do is united by a uh, focus on improving small local businesses, SMEs, um, access to, to markets, skills, typically business skills and, and finance. And what we're trying to achieve is a, a greater uh, linkages and opportunities between, let's call it big business, so larger corporates, often international yeah. companies. And those and those small local entities and, and helping them improve their access to to opportunities and, and really driving a more level playing field and, and job creation that comes with it why did you get involved if you've not got a a, 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 a sort of 
you know, cultural uh, connection with Africa. A lot of luck, right, 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 right place. Maybe wrong guy in the right place at the right time. <laughs> but uh, my prior, previous work was in a totally unrelated field. Um, and while studying uh, and doing a, a, an MBA in London, this opportunity came about through conversations with various African-focused corporates that have headquarters in London. And there was a, clearly a need to improve uh, both relations, but also opportunities in their supply chains locally. And I think perhaps slightly uniquely in Africa, a lot of a lot of that can be driven by regulatory pressure and a desire from governments to see corporates um, make a conscious effort, not just a sort of CSR tick box exercise, but a, a very conscious effort to go over and above what might be normal in other parts of the world in terms of creating uh, opportunities for, for local businesses to be a part of their um, supply chain or of their operations. Yeah. So the few companies that had that shared kind of challenge, let's call it. And um, and in kicking that idea around, we came up with this initiative of Invest in Africa uh, as being a sort of coordinating and neutral third party that could act in the middle and, and help them do that. Because at the end of the day, none of these businesses um, get out of bed to, to solely do that themselves. They, they have other things to do. And so if we could play that role for them, and then there would seem to be real value in that. So it was a unique opportunity at a unique time that I, I, I jumped in. I'd like to actually ask, seeing as there's one of us that's in Africa right now, uh, let me go to you, Reshman, and just say, you know, people have an image of, of Africa. You know, they have an image that's either, you know, uh, a historical image. They have an image of kind of maybe holidays. They have an image of kind of poverty. They have an image of various things, instability, all of that stuff. You're sitting there right now in a major Kenyan city, uh, sorry, yeah, African city, forget the country, just an African city. Do you think we've got it wrong about Africa in what we see, that we, we don't understand what, what businesses and people there want when we're looking in? You've got so much variety in terms of development and non-development as well. And it's understanding that whatever people have seen of Africa, it's probably true, but it's not true for the whole continent as a whole, uh, and therefore, like any everything in life, there's different sides of every story. Um, and so, yes, there's loads of areas for development, but if you were to come to Nairobi and go to the Central Business Unit uh, District, you could be in any big Western city as well in terms of the infrastructure that's there, in terms of the discussions and the business that take place. Take a couple of hours drive out, completely different story. Yeah. I mean, I suppose, I mean, my background, as people will know, is from India. And India, I suppose, has had that image, but got rid of it in, in the last few decades because people have been to Mumbai, they've seen the, the growth. Same with China, that there's been the kind of this kind of, I don't know what you call it, Western crossover. And people can see that there is a bit of stability and lots of money has gone in and big IT firms. Is that what it's like if I walked around the streets of Nairobi? For me, who's never been there, how would you describe the city to, to a Westerner or a person from, from, I don't know, America or India? What would, they, what would they see? Would they feel it like somewhere they recognise or would they see it as a, they still have images of people riding around in kind of, you know, dare I say donkey carts like people used to think about India? <laughs> They would see loads of parts that they would recognize, loads of parts. So that in terms of the business side, the shops, in terms the of labels, that sort of stuff, hotels, labels, we're getting a lot more international brands coming in and, and they would only come in if the money was there. So they would, you know, so there is money generating in the economy as well. 
but there's still a huge divide uh, between the people who have money and the people who don't have money. Mm. And there are still the shanty towns that you will see. There are still people who are living well below, uh, you know, the, the average minimum uh, income levels per day. Th th there is that mix. And therefore, the challenge is how to use what's there uh, yes. and actually then take that to try and bring pull up the whole country, pull up the whole continent. Um, and appreciating that every, everybody's not in the same position means that you have to take a staged approach to that as well. You can't just move in one big bang in terms of, um, you know, technology, in terms of financing, uh, in terms of capacity as well uh, for the people to take it on. So there is a divide, but it's not all doom and gloom. It's not all that you know, we don't have that business there. We don't have, we have, we don't have the infrastructure. Yeah. Take Kenya as an example, you know, the IT side is very well developed. Uh, and, and therefore you see a lot of businesses actually coming in on the back of that as well. Rosalind, you, you, you're, you know, you said you were made in Ghana. So growing up in Ghana, mm -hmm. do you think, uh, you know, that you felt any different to if you'd grown up, you were born here, as you say, like I was, you, but you would say you'd grown up here. Do you think you'd have been a very different person because of what, what you experienced in Africa? Or did you feel you had all the opportunities that you would have had if you'd stayed, stayed in London, for example? Actually, I, I think it was, it's to my great advantage that I actually grew up in Ghana because I was born here, but went back uh, to Ghana or, or went to Ghana for the first time when I was two with my yeah. mother. <laughs> yeah. so, and, and then came back. All the first memories are of Ghana, of course, yeah. So, so came back here uh, to the UK when I was almost 21. Right. And to be honest, I finished university in Ghana, came over here to do my second degree. So I did my first degree in Ghana, came over here to do law. And I actually thought when I arrived in London, and this is a few decades ago, that um, we were better off in Ghana, to be honest. <laughs> For all sorts of reasons. But I don't blame I, you. The weather being one. <laughs> well, it, it wasn't, it was, you know, I, I, I was amazed that at the time I left Ghana, I felt there were more fancy restaurants than I could easily find here in the oh. UK. And, and this yeah. is in London. This is quite interesting. So I think, and, and for me, it was great that I, I grew up there. Uh, you know, I came over here uh, a very confident young woman. Um, there's no doubt that um, having spent as many years as I've done here has has helped greatly. But I think the foundations were very important. And so, yeah, I mean, things have changed. I would say um, maybe there's been more of a, a going a going backwards from when I was growing up in Africa. Yeah. I mean, things yeah. are moving now. But I think, as Reshma says, um, you know, it's it's not one country. It's a continent of of uh, 54 mm. countries. And each one very different. Each one has its um, divisions and its, its developmental agendas and, um, and and the positive aspects of it. So I, I always find it difficult to talk about Africa in that sort of very general um, way. I mean, fortunately, I've been, uh, I've either visited or worked in quite a few countries across the continent. So do know about the diversity that's there. And I think it's something that if one is a business looking to go into the continent, it's very important to choose which country you're going to focus on and study it and learn about it properly to understand where you could best establish your business and be comfortable. So I think it's not, um, it's not just a one size fits all, we're going into Africa. You have to choose which country you're going to go into. And before I bring William in, I mean, for both of you ladies, if I can look at this, sustainability, 
we probably are used to, a, a, you know, it's a small island, regulatory decisions are made and then we all go there. How would you say, particularly uh, as both of you have traveled sort of throughout the continent, is there a unifying belief in sustainability on the continent? Or are some countries going, no, we're going to go oil and gas. That's what we want. We want coal. We've got it. We're going to use it. Others go, no, no, we really want to go clean and we want to look at waste. How would you say, if it, or is it impossible to sum up whether there is a kind of unified view that they, they, the, the continent wants to be more sustainable and do this? The, the continent, like anywhere else in the world, does want to be more sustainable. But again, it depends on what the particular development needs of each country. Yeah. Are. Mm. Um, I think what's important to these countries is that, you know, no matter what, um, the people there want to have decent enough lifestyle, you know, yeah. good jobs, be able to Absolutely. and have good health, um, the basics that anyone else wants. So it really does depend. And I think the difficulty is, and um, the West is where it is, or the developed world is where it is, and sort of imposing um, the trajectory of the developed world upon emerging economies can be a bit difficult. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the discomfort, the, the discomfort or tensions come. So it's not that Africa says, or countries in Africa say, we want to continue using coal. It's a question of, we need energy for our industrial development. Mm. The level of industrial development cannot solely rely on, say, renewable energy. Yeah. Um, so for example, there will be, I believe that there'll be a real need to be able for countries in Africa to use their gas resources for the energy that's required for industrial development and therefore broader economic and social development and should be allowed to do so with a look at a transition to renewable energy as things improve. But I think it's, it's, it's very important that, again, as I say, one looks at each individual country and where they are. So you'll find that, for example, in South Africa, they may be a lot further down the line when it comes to energy transition because- uh, Absolutely, yeah, we do loads of stories from there. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Whereas, I mean, you know, you'll find other countries where less so because they need, um, far more energy and far more uh, diversified sources of energy to get their development going. So again, I think it's a very individual country issue and uh, difficult to say, but undoubtedly at the end of the day, like everywhere else in the world, the countries in Africa, and it doesn't matter what you hear about, let's put their leaders aside, let's talk about the citizens. The citizens of the country want what is best for themselves and their families and for the country as a whole. Yeah, yeah. And it's always the same, you know, you go to places where if you live somewhere polluted, you don't like it. You want that place cleaned up. You know, I've visited many parts of India where, you know, the, 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 the cities seem to accelerate at the, at, the, at the cost of, you know, the more rural economies where, 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 they're, where they're doing the dumping. So I think there must be a, a feeling that, you know, whenever we, we have this broad brush thing that, you know, oh, yes, they're, they're going for coal and gas, Ghana particularly is, known for kind of you know the gas the, oh that's what they're doing because they, they want to they want to burn it you you don't think that's the case they, they're doing that because they want to try and improve the, the rights of their and, and the lives of their citizens the best way they can yes and and i think um you know reshma and i were talking earlier and she will share with you that i think there's also a sense that you know <laughs> how sustainability is defined i mean i think people don't take into account that African cultures, and I'll let Reshma go into this a little bit more, African cultures have always been sustainable just because of what we have and the resource constraints we have. 
So um, I think we need to look at the definition of sustainability a little more broadly than the International yeah. Finance Corporation defines it. <laughs> Reshma, did you want to add something on that? And that, that sounds interesting. You're... Yeah, I mean, um, you know, as, as Rosalind said, there, there is a, a bit around re reality of the situation in, in Africa as well. I mean, you, you look at public debt, you know, we're about 70% or so of our GDP is public debt if you took Africa as a whole. So we have to look at development uh, and, and, but we also have a lot of natural resources, not just oil and gas, uh, but anything that lends itself to wind, to solar as well. So it naturally leads itself to look at renewables um, as well. But then you come to, okay, fine. So that's where the global or the kind of policies of the countries are going. But what about the individual people themselves and what do they think? Mm. Um, when you look at sustainability in itself, where, when you look at climate change, Africa in itself only contributes or will contribute about 5% of the kind of emissions. Yeah. Yet it's now seeing the impact of climate change on itself, drought, floods, etc. So people are beginning to realize, okay, so that's the impact that we're facing, even if we're not the biggest contributors. But then as individuals, they look to themselves and say, so how do we live um, as Africans? And basically, it's either the culture or it's basically limited resources. But it is very much consumption around reduce, reuse, recycle, your whole circular economy. The culture is very much based on that. So it naturally lends itself towards sustainability. And it's about taking that and actually just how do you, you know, basically get it to a level that that's brought into business as well. So really don't take away the culture, look at the African culture, try and take some of the Western ideas, but actually really uh, nourish that uh, culture of being able to reuse and recycle and bring that into a more global basis for Africa. Will. Do you think most of us have some prejudices about this? And, um, you know, we take a kind of, I'm not going to use the word colonial, but we take an attitude of this is what sustainability looks like in the West. That's what it should look like in Africa. I, I think it's probably fair, a fair observation. I think um, from, a you know, trying to keep this on a business perspective, there's an underlying assumption that big corporates know best and have the answers. And I don't think that's always right for developing markets and and in this case africa and it's probably true for for, for india and, and parts of china and, and south america but the assumption that the way they do business they will typically have a sustainability let's call it manual or uh, ways in which they want to do business to tick their sustainability boxes and they will apply that regardless of the local context and i think that's where the problem problems start uh, because you'll have uh, an expectation that this should be done if you want to do business with yeah. this is yeah. how to do business and therefore you're expected to get your head around it um, and comply because we're the big boys and you want to you want to sit at the same table as us whereas actually it, it should be the other way around it should be that if if you want to be successful and sustainable in the truest sense in the local market then you need to adapt your ways of doing business and your standards and your policies to the local context and that includes culture and the education system um, and, and government expectations now that's a lot harder to do on a, on a market by market basis or a region by region, region basis um, and they don't like it so they'll squirm and, and you know come up with reasons why it can't be done um, but this is where there needs to be discussions with the bigger corporates to to understand what can be done on the, on the local context rather than trying to apply sort of global and particularly Western standards 
to a very different local marketplace in, in Africa or indeed other developing markets. Now, you talked at the beginning about kind of, a, you know, working with smaller businesses, not just the big corporate names. And this is what we've seen probably globally, you know, China, India, you know, big corporates came over, said, right, we're going to build factories. We're going to put in these methods and some bad and some good. And we're going to try and sort of show you the way that we do things. And, and that's where they've boomed, to be fair, in, in parts of the world. But we haven't heard much about the kind of, you know, the other way, which is actually, hang on, we've run this business this way. If you want to come and help us, then you need to adapt. What, what do the small businesses, the smaller businesses you speak to, the African-owned businesses across the continent? You said, I think, was it five countries you guys are, are working in? Is that right? I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, five, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so when you speak to them, what do they want? What do, what do they think? Are they, hey, hey, do you know what? We, did, we got this covered. We don't need you to tell us what to do. Well, I'd, I'd love to have the time to speak to all of them, but um, so I can't, <laughs> I would say uh, sort of um, anecdotally, um, remembering we're dealing with SMEs. So a lot of yeah. them are turning over, you know, less than less than $2 million a year. Um, we've got a few members that I call medium size, quite a few members in the sort of two to $5 million category, but a lot of them are turning over a lot less than that. And I think for them, it's still framed that sustainability is still seen as a cost of doing business. Um, uh, there a, we go and it's a barrier rather than a door that once you walk through and you sort of you know rather than something that once you understand you turn it into an opportunity would you agree with that yeah i would definitely agree with that and and it's it's the last point that will said is about um once you understand that you can turn it into an opportunity um the ones that um probably don't even know that they are going down the path of sustainability but have found ways to be more efficient uh, or to cut their costs down. And the way they've done that is actually created a sustainable path. Um, and for people like ourselves here who probably see a lot of that, is to try and use those examples to help other businesses actually um, see where the benefits are. Um, so th there have been examples of where people to cut costs have started recycling water usage or to manage kind of wastewater and, and that in itself is a massive issue for us here, waste. Um, but it's actually the, the reason that was driving it was business efficiency. Or mm. uh, there were examples of shortages around oxygen and, and distribution networks, and then actually establishing themselves in the rural areas because of logistical problems. But then by doing that, they've actually cut down the supply chain and all the kind of green effects of that and created something that is more available and created an ecosystem around themselves, which is also around sustainability. So there is a role for the smaller businesses, but it's helping them to see how it's helping their businesses to actually do that. Yeah, yeah I think, you know, I think that that is the point. I think a lot of the time, um, sustainability or what we call environmental, social and governance standards are seen more in terms of risk mitigation or compliance and both, yeah. the drive to see it as uh, value creating has uh, you know it has not been very paramount and we've got we see lots of examples of where businesses naturally without even thinking as Reshma says that they're doing this have you know ad adapted or adopted and implemented what we would call sustainability standards and you know whether it's from diversity issues there's a case of a company in Ghana which is um a petroleum company, it, it, it trucks um, fuel across the country. 
And the owner recognized that um, when he had male drivers trucking the fuel, somehow the amount that they started off with was never the amount they ended up with. And he was losing sometimes some, up to about $50,000 a month. Wow. So he decided that he was going to turn and begin to use women uh, to drive these trucks. And he therefore invested in, uh, there was a, a lady who wanted to start a trucking company. So he literally became and still is the main shareholder in her company, and now uses women drivers to truck the fuel. And he says he sleeps perfectly well at night, and there's a business that is blooming. And one would have thought, this is not his CSL, this is, this is not just his social investment, this is core to his business. It actually impacts the bottom line. Now, somebody would describe it as a sort of sustainability, nice social investment story, but it's actually core to business. So um, mm. there's a, another case where a microfinance institution in the DRC realized that um, women agents that they had were more likely to be located in communities that lacked basic banking services and therefore were more successful as, uh, as agents, more than the male, in reaching uh, female customers. And again, one would have thought, okay, uh, social is a diversity issue, sustainability, but no, this was just a, a part and parcel of, of the business. And I think it's getting more of those examples out and using more of those to show African businesses that this is what we mean by sustainability, not yeah. some rules that are imposed from the outside, but just to make your business you know, it, it, it hits the bottom line, your financial bottom line. And, um, and as we say, the, also the ESG bottom lines. So I, I think we, we, we need to think more in terms of those when um, international businesses, for example, are coming in and looking to uh, take on um, uh, suppliers that will and invest in Africa are looking at, to see it more in those terms, and these are the rules comply with them you know, really talk to the business and see how the way they're operating can actually um, still meet those same ESG goals. Yeah. Um, well, who, who, who is going to Africa? I mean, we've heard a lot of the last probably five years of China, the whole Belt and Road thing of Xi Jinping and, you know, seen big brands from there going in. We've seen some brands from, you know, Asia going in, some brands from Europe. I mean, who, who are the people there now? And what sort of businesses are going in? You know, we, we heard earlier from Reshma saying that, you know, IT is booming there. Yeah, we, we know about kind of cobalt and the, the essential rare earth minerals that have been mined sometimes in controversial ways. But, you know, we, we know there's a lot of resources there that could aid hugely in, in EVs or, or generally in, in renewable tech. So what sort of companies are looking at investing in Africa now, the ones you, you, you talk to? It's very hard, back to Reshma's point, it's very hard to generalize across such a huge continent. So each country sure. will, have, will have investment priorities set out by the host government. So you will see strong, uh, you're starting to see, you know, regional hubs. So you'll have areas that are very dominant on things like textiles, you know, and typically you could look at Ethiopia and Rwanda for that sort of thing. And then you'll have areas that are very ICT dominated uh, and Kenya leads the way in that respect. Um, and other markets will be um, promoting uh, healthcare opportunities. Uh, but I think across the board, you know, FMCG, growing fast, uh, manufacturing continues to be a, a pretty much a priority sector. And of course, agriculture, because of its huge employment base um, is a common as a common investment priority across countries. Um, so it's hard to it's really hard to generalize. Um, renewables um, continues to grow uh, quickly across, you know, major sub-Saharan Africa markets, which is our focus is, is sub-Saharan Africa. So there's a huge diversity. And, um, you know, you could take you could download 
10 different FDI reports into, invest, into Africa and you can slice and dice them and come up with 10 different uh, top investors by, by country or sector. Um, it depends what you're looking for. The stats could tell you almost anything. And that, they don't include your bilateral agreements between you know, government to government and some of those are, are huge. So I, you know, ev everyone and, and anyone is investing. Um, and um, you could, you'll find a huge amount of American, Chinese, British, French, um, German, Spanish, Turkish. You know, there's a real diversity there that reflects the diversity of the opportunities. And how many big African countries are there, uh, companies are there? I mean, I read a piece the other day about um, a, a trainer. I can't remember the name of the trainer, but it's uh, uh, Africa's own trainer made in, I can't remember which country, but it was like doing an, an enormous trade because it had grown organically as a business for the African market. I mean, are there some huge sort of names that, you know, would, would be like trying to knock on the doors here? Is that happening as well? Sadly, not quite enough yet. I mean, there are, there are lots of very good domestic uh, businesses of a decent size, but often there's they, not, too, not too many have made that step up where you could name, uh, you know, off the top of your head, you could probably name five Korean or Chinese yes. or um, Danish and Norwegian firms, you know, your Nokias, your Samsungs, your Panasonics, your Sonys, et cetera. You, you, it, it's much harder to rattle those off the tongue from, um, from African co companies that have made a real impact uh, internationally. Um, there, there are so many that are nearly there, but it's, it, it's that gap that is, is, is where, where time and effort needs to be spent. And there are big initiatives underway, like the free trade agreement, which is this vast continental free trade agreement that just went live on the 1st of January this year. Um, that should help with that, but it will take time. Um, yeah. And it, as it opens up the whole of Africa to a, a free trade zone um, to companies already there. So it's, 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 it's not there yet, um, but it, it's close. And it's one of the problems and, and um, dichotomies that governments face is that a lot of the time that big space is dominated by multinationals um, yes. who repatriate profits um, to shareholders or, or to headquarters offices. And it's something Rosalind and I have spoken about before, and it, it is a problem and it is a challenge that, you know, without those poster children, let's call them all those case studies, what will inspire the next generation to want to be, uh, you know, the future Samsung or the future Sony or Panasonic or Nokia if they don't exist today? And it is a real problem that a lot of the time, the smaller businesses we deal with, the mindset is that they want to um, use the business um, to fund, you know, a certain lifestyle or to achieve a certain level of income or wealth. But there isn't the vision to grow it into a business that they um, becomes regional or that they sell um, or that has real scale. It's often just seen as a way of funding uh, a lifestyle uh, as it is today. Yeah. Can I, can I just add that, that that is that is changing quite quickly. And I mean, Will is right there. We, we don't have a lot of, uh, uh, um, you know, companies made in Africa, I say, who've transcended the borders. A lot of them that have done so are actually South Africans. So you've got your mining companies, you know, your Anglo-Americans, your De Beers, your old mutuals. Yes, they're old, yeah, um, absolutely. You know, you've, got, you've got those ones. But you, you're, you're finding now, I mean, you know, what we're finding when we talk to people is that a lot of them are, well, first of all, wanting to grow within their own countries and then within the particular region, whether it's West, South or, or East Africa. I think East Africa is a lot stronger on that, on, on having those sort of regional businesses and Reshma can speak to that. But, you know, just recently, for example, um, someone I know has just opened a kidney dialysis center 
in, in Ghana. I mean, literally just started this week. And I was talking to him yesterday and he said, actually, this is just my pilot scheme. And I really would like to see this replicated or this sort of business because he's opened a center that's really up to international standards and he's taking quite, but to start across West Africa. So you're beginning to find people thinking more about outside the borders and what to mm. do to step out. And, and this is where, again, if I may say so, the whole sustainability, when you're thinking about environmental, social and governance standards comes into play, because how do we make sure that there is sort of alignment so that you don't have different standards that you have to meet if you want to cross um, a border that applies to all regulations. But I think we're just generally finding the mindset, particularly amongst the younger entrepreneurial types, um, of wanting to go beyond the border and beyond this idea of I just want to fund a lifestyle there's a, a bit more ambition coming up now yeah. I'd, I'd agree with that and I'd add a few more things as well in terms of um, the, in addition to the mindset there's other things around the country mindset of the government as well um, so you know we always promote local content a lot but local content is local local to the country the minute you want to go into the other country next door they're promoting their local content. So that yeah. also becomes a barrier um, to trade. Uh, and some of the other, like the free trade agreements and that Will was talking about, they will break down some of those barriers uh, and therefore encourage that growth. The other element is finance. You know, the availability of finance for some of these companies to be able to grow beyond their immediate reach. And we have had some examples of companies that have had some development kind of financing coming in uh, and we've seen them grow, but they tend to be more around a regional basis than an Africa whole basis. So a few things around the trade agreements, uh, more access to financing. I think we'll start, you'll start seeing a lot more growth around the continent. I mean, if we look at, I mean, you know, people have heard of the, the UN, but there is an African union, isn't there? There's a kind of, organization that's sort of supposed to represent all the states for, for Africa to to start to make these big strides in sustainability that we're talking about does it need that that union to say right come on everyone let's get together let's set some general rules of how we make products of how we do business so that they are more sustainable so that we can cross borders easily is is do, do you have views on that any of you I think that's, Will mentioned the um, African Continental Free Trade Area Agreement, and which um, came into force. Well, it was 1st of January, is that right? Because you've done quite a bit on that recently. Um, and I think that's, that, that is one of the main aims of, of that Continental Free Trade Agreement. But even before then, there have been regional agreements. There's a regional agreement for East Africa, West Africa, um, Southern Africa, I guess North Africa too, I don't know. But and those have been, you know, successful to a small extent. I don't think it's so much when it comes to that business focus. I think it's more, we'll be looking more to the African Continental Free Trade Area Agreement to work on those uh, alignment of standards, which has happened to a lesser extent through the regional agreements. But that's where we would look. I mean, Will, you did something on that recently, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, no, I, I'd agree with that. I, I think generally the the regional blocks. So you have your regional blocks within the AU is the umbrella organization. And then you have a block that represents West Africa, East Africa, South Africa, etc. And they've been around for many years. And I think with, you know, they've had some impact, but I think by and large, people talk about them in terms of being disappointed on what they've delivered. And the hope and expectation is, is that this wider continental free trade agreement will deliver in ways that the, those regional blocks haven't. 
but the huge focus of it has been what you just mentioned, Sam. It has been around standardization and how do you move a product that originates in market X all the way over to the other side of Africa um, and can be assured that it won't get um, taxed or have a um, uh, an import uh, fee due on it uh, each each time it crosses a border. So rules of origin, country of origin, and standardization are the real focus of this continental free trade agreement. So it needs time to bed in, but it's supposed to do exactly what you've outlined. And we hope right. it's successful. <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, I suppose before we end this episode, we should look at you know what what we're all about, which is net zero. So if I was to walk down the high street in any of the major cities in Africa, and I said the word net zero, would anyone know what I'm talking about? Yes. <laughs> you said, would anybody? So the answer to that is yes. yes. <laughs> well done, very good. <laughs> yes. Would the average person know what I'm talking about then? Let me put it that way. <laughs> the average person. Is it there? Is it a phrase? Do anyone, does anyone know yes. about kind of, yes. you know, we can see that the parts of the world are really talking about it. You've had China mention it. Obviously now with, you know, Joe Biden in there, he's committed. We did it, first of all, I suppose, as, as a leading economy to do it in 2019. So is there the, 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 the talking, the phrase net zero, is that starting to hit the, the, the streets, the business communities, the, the financial centres? Are they starting to talk about it in... In, in cities. What about where you are now in Kenya? Are they talking about it there? Increasingly so. Um, so there's still a bit of work around what does it actually mean, but as a phrase, a lot of people have heard it. Uh, it's encouraged by the fact that um, uh, legislation around environment has always been the strongest part of legislation around the ESG side, and, and therefore people are used to looking at it that way. It's also by the fact that when you look at like the African Development Bank, they're talking about green bonds, Kenya's yeah. talking about green bonds, so people say, what are the green bonds? Okay, so what is net zero? So there's a few themes that are coming together that are getting people to understand what it is, and we have seen a few things in the local papers as well, kind of, you know, um, ah, explaining what it is right. so, th so that it is it is coming. happening yeah. it is beginning to happen yeah. um, but there's still more that can be done but it's definitely um, you'd find people understand what it is or at least aware of what it is and, and if I was to walk down the streets of Accra on that right now Rosalind would, would, would people be talking about it would would would, the, would it be the chattering middle class like the rest of us? We go, oh, yes, we should do something better for the environment. Hey, let's all think about that zero. <laughs> that, would be, that would be some, you know, the, there is an awareness about it. I don't think it's top of the mind for a lot of people because people, you know, particularly now have some more fundamental, what they would call of course, of course. more fundamental concerns. But it's not unknown. Um, uh, both Kenya and Ghana have the... Uh, climate innovation centers have climate innovation centers. I, I know the lady who runs the one in Ghana very well, and she's actually quite focused on speaking to SMEs about what they can do in that area. I've just um, just to say that there is um, a, a, a chapter net zero, which is about it's a, it's a global thing for non-executive directors or boards to better understand what they can do as um, members of boards to, uh, you know, to, to um, bring about or to help bring about net zero, whatever that means. Um, and actually, I've, I've just started talking to somebody in Ghana about setting up a chapter in, in, in Ghana for NED. So it is, you know, it, it, it's being talked about. I don't think you're, I mean, if you just went and asked your, your 
average man or woman on the street about sure. the they would yeah. understand. But where it matters, as as here, as as in the UK, wherever it, you know, I think where it matters, the discussion is happening. It's not unknown. I think, as Reshma said, the big question is that what does it mean for us, and what does it mean? What what does it? What do we do about it? I mean, and I think that's what needs to be broken down. That's a brilliant place to end this episode. Uh, thank you very much, uh, all three of you, for, uh, I think, a very enlightening, for me anyway, for sure. I've been enlightened. I'll probably ask some stupid questions to you guys, but uh, th th that's been brilliant. Uh, Rosalind, uh, Reshma and William, thank you so much. Uh, we'll look at the next chapter in our journey through Africa in our next episode, where we'll be looking at some of the challenges of getting to net zero. You've been listening to a future net zero podcast. I'm Sumit Bose. Thanks a lot for listening. Rate this subscribe and tell your friends all about it.